Okay, uh, let's see. How many of you liked the movie? Raise your hand. Thought it was okay, the movie. Were you here last week? Donna? Perfect. Uh, movie was good, all right. You know, we had talked about what to do next, and we, we had kind of, you know, we'd kind of gone back and forth between whether to do another book. There were a couple suggestions. Whether to do another topic. You know, we talked about the Lord's Supper. Um, to do something on Nowen. You know, we've done Nowen before, but we talked about it. Um, we talked about even doing a book of the Bible. Um, and didn't really come to any conclusions. So uh, part of the trouble is, and I said this to someone in an email, they sent me a couple suggestions, very good suggestions, but I wrote back and said, we've done so many kind of fun things that it's difficult to find the next enjoyable thing. We thought simply Christian kind of, uh, it was appropriate for this particular time in our life together, I think. I think people, as the book progressed, um, some people probably loved it from the very beginning. I probably had a different take on it. I loved it from the very beginning because I'd already read it once, so I knew it was coming, okay? <laughs> Which is part of it. When you read it for the first time and you're reading the first few chapters, you say, oh, I, don't know how, I don't know how this is going to all work out. But I think by the end, uh, not everybody, but I think most people at least saw some value in the book. Um, his last few chapters were very, very good, especially his last chapter and his last few paragraphs were, uh, were the best thing he probably wrote. So. I think that was a good thing. Um, I don't know if we necessarily want to do something on postmodernism itself. That might be overkill. Uh, but we're still trying to figure out exactly what to do next. In the meantime, though, are there any questions? You know, we kind of buzzed through questions last Friday because we were trying to get the movie set up and the speakers didn't work. And I mean, typical Lutheran stuff. You know, you come downstairs, you plug it all in, and then it doesn't work, and just. Makes me yes well, but we hope to be better than that. When I when I said to the when I said to the vicar, will the sound work? Oh yeah, sound will work. Sound will work. And then we came down and sound didn't work. It worked, just not the way we thought it was going to work. So, um, you don't like to look unprepared, but that's the way it goes. Any questions though on NT Wright? Just to wrap up the book, anything you're dying to ask? Anything you liked, you didn't like? Speak now, forever hold your peace. Really, there's not, you have no questions. You forgot. Well, now whose fault is that, Carol? Mine or yours? <laughs> is, that a, a CD, is that a CDH going into Labor Cup? Okay. okay. It's a hospital. Yeah, I've seen those before. Yeah, right. Might speed that bad boy up. <laughs> All right. Um, Anybody want to comment on the book? Donna? I know you're dying right now. You're dying to say something, Donna. Yeah, you, Donna. <laughs> that's a typical, that's a great, that's what they happen to the eighth grade when I say, Joe, tell us about the Eucharist. And Joe kind of looks around like, Who's, where's the other Joe at? You know? You did. And you know, sometimes that's, that's the mark of a good book. You, you know you like it, you don't know why, right? Um, so that's okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. It would go ahead.
Hey, now, we have a guest sitting right next to you. Shouldn't, she didn't mean that. Oh, good. All right. Well, in that case, uh, I don't think it's weird. Very postmodern. Well, I think I think you I think you I think you bring up a good point, and the point is, um, um, well, I didn't think that was the point you were making, but uh, I think I think I think the broader just let's let's start from the very beginning with broad strokes regarding the text. Um, in a sense, uh, you reveal something about yourself. This is not you; it's everybody in the room. You reveal about something about yourself when you react to a text. That's part of the reason why books, and, and especially in academic circles, are so important. If you go, I, just was, I was just looking the other day, there's this, this great college out on the West Coast, St. Thomas Aquinas College, where there are no lectures. The kids just, kids, the students just read books, and then they just react. What did you see? What did you like? What didn't you like? It's not, it's kind of not your traditional academic setting. It's very, uh, it's very ancient, actually. It's kind of like the early church. Uh, but you reveal a lot about yourself when you react to a book. So I think for some folks, what they what they wanted in NT Wright was something more specific, and maybe even a bit more explanation. So, for instance, with the arts, the next question would be, well, like what, right? Or give me some examples, or where can I find this? Which is, and again, don't. This is not meant to be a, a knock. That's a very modern way of thinking. Okay? You've given me all the data. You've said these are ways that we can engage it. Now explain it to me. But I think what we've tried to say from the very beginning was that's the way culture works, and we're actually not opposed to explaining it. The way culture works now is they're caught up by something, they're engaged by something, and once they're so caught up in its life, then they say, explain that to me. Right? Where 30 or 40 years ago you said, explain it to me. If I like it, then I'll be caught up in its life. Very different. So what you've just, you, you basically, you read this text as a postmodern, but you're asking modern questions now, which is very okay. That's, the, what, that's what we want. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> That's why I'm completely unfeeling.
Yeah, that is, um, it's the same thing. It's like anything in life. Uh, if you let it dominate, it's in the way of the law. If you receive it as a gift, it's in the way of the gospel. So even Luther, at the time of the Reformation, talks about the use of reason. You know, they, at the time of the Reformation, they're just kind of coming out of the scholastic era where reason is king. Um, and Luther at one point says, you know, uh, when reason is king, that's completely idle. When reason is in service to the gospel, then it comes as a gift. Same thing with feelings. When feelings are king, when people begin their sentences with I think, or I'm sorry, I feel, um, and feelings and emotions drive everything completely irrationally, um, that is in the way of an idol. Okay, that is in the way. Sometimes your emotions can be an idol. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Your emotions, your emotions can be an idol for a variety of reasons, primarily because to be rational, to think, requires humility. Because you've actually got to engage someone else, hear what they have to say, think it all the way through, give it, in a sense, give it respect, and then respond charitably. Um, and that then, but, but emotions don't work that way. Emotions are completely irrational at times. So you don't actually care what was said, you just respond. Someone said this morning, oh, I, I spoke before I thought, right? I spoke before I thought. Now that's not wrong, but it's wrong when that's all you ever do, is speak before you think. So let's look at this, this is actually very helpful. Um, this is actually an article by N.T. Wright from 2005. Here's the question I would like to pose. I'll read this to you, it's very short. I, you know, I blew up the print a little bit, so uh, it doesn't say anything about you. I just blew up the print a little bit. Um, I'll read this to you, but I, I wonder, you know, I think people, many people had a similar reaction to you, Rebecca, which was, um, all he talks about, I think people characterize us as pastors for, for leading this, and especially postmodernism, as being driven completely by feelings and being utterly irrational. Okay? Now that may be an unfair characterization, but I think people said those sorts of things, like modernism is, is rational and postmodernism is irrational. Heck, I said it at one point. And there's, there is some truth in that. But, um, if postmodernism is utterly irrational, and if Tom Wright's book, Simply Christian, is essentially utterly irrational, it's all about emotions and feelings, um, then it may not be a proper book to read. But I wonder, let's read this, let's read this, where he talks about reason, and see if we can find, you know, some intersection between the two, okay? So just remember N.T. Wright. Remember everything you thought about it when we started? Um, and now listen to this from the exact same guy. When I was an undergraduate, I read a book called Clarity is Not Enough. It challenged the prevailing linguistic philosophy, which said less and less with more and more precision. Now, uh, it's, I think it's, it's Whitehead who says the only true simplicity is on the far side of complexity. And you meet brilliant, the truly brilliant people are people who can say very complex things in a very simple way. Okay, that's brilliant. Truly complex things in a very simple way, which is part of the reason, um, you know, part of the reason you talk in terms of a gift. Uh, a gift, at least in, in theological circles, entails a very complex thing, all that Jesus is and all that Jesus does, but you say it as simply as he gives you a gift, okay? So when you can say that, that's brilliance. Yes, we have to think and speak accurately, otherwise we go around in circles. 
But philosophy must be about something, life, meaning, ethics, truth. Clarity does not, of course, guarantee significance. And this, I mean, just look at the church. And I don't mean this church, I mean the church, capital C. Clarity does not guarantee significance. Broadcast is not reception. You have people that are very, very clear, and that doesn't necessarily mean that people will, one, hear it, or two, find it significant. <laughs> okay? Reducing all statements to x equals x may be satisfying. Yes, it is. But it cannot tell you what to believe or how to behave. Okay? Now we need another book. But unclarity will not do either. Cardinal Newman recently died, uh, you know, recently, past couple hundred years, said that he would drink to the Pope, but to conscience first. I will drink to several causes. And again, just remember where he's coming from as we read this. This is, we're not supporting this. I'm just, in current debate, I will drink to women bishops and as soon as possible. But I will drink to reason first. Reason is in short supply right now. And that is always dangerous. When everybody feels strongly that they know what to do, but nobody stops to think, you will sometimes find that common sense is prevailing. But you may also get lynchings, racist attacks, and the cheerful abolition of ancient rights. Reason is on the side of the angels. When someone says in a debate, what I feel is, now think about in the church how often this happens. What I feel, I feel this way. When someone says in a debate, what I feel is the chair ought to intervene. What people feel is neither here nor there in a debate. If someone says, I like salt, Drake, <laughs> someone else says, I like pepper, they are not having a debate. Okay? That's not, that's not, that's not thinking. What matters is what they think. Sadly, it is, it is possible for many people to feel strongly, strongly something which comes to be recognized as dangerous nonsense. The 20th century should have taught us that if nothing else, feelings are, are hugely important, but if we rely on them as our guide, this is your point, Rebecca, feelings are hugely important, but if we rely on them as our guide, we might as well take a compass bearing on a wild goat. When feelings rule, <laughs> debaters become demagogues. Much of our contemporary discourse, I sat two days in the General Senate a week ago, has degenerated into a co competition between the, the relative woundedness of people's feelings how often do you have debates or discussions in the church where you say, I feel this way and you've hurt me this way. I feel this way and you've hurt me this way. And then you just go back and forth. I am not saying that wounded, wounded feelings do not matter. Only that saying, I'm more hurt than you are, cannot settle an argument on a point of principle. Not about how hurt you've been. Unfortunately, since victimhood is the only high moral ground left after the collapse of reason discourse, <laughs> Speeches become harangues, name-calling replaces respectful engagement, and party spirit trumps public wisdom. Not for the first time, the Church of England has copied the surrounding culture greatly to its disadvantage. True, reason is sometimes overemphasized. Like clarity, it needs something to work on. In Christian thinking, scripture, and tradition. But you would have thought, you would have thought we could at least apply it to our own documents. Last week's debate about women bishops mostly consisted of people making passionate speeches on a question that was not on the order, of, that was not on the order paper. 
The official question was about a way of proceeding, not about whether we approved of women bishops. If people had wanted to debate that, they should have amended the motion. It is like the government's bill on religious hatred. They say it is just a symbol and will not be taken literally, but that is poppycock. For there is a lot about postmodernism I like, but when it comes to the law of the land, I want words that say what they mean and mean what they say. Okay? This is necessary in order to build a society, or indeed a church, of trust, the precondition of genuine debate. You have to trust your opponents to say what they mean and mean what they say, and you have to earn their trust by doing the same. This happens all the time in the church. What you meant was, no, I mean what I say and say what I mean. And then trust is broken, and then you can't actually have a conversation. Here again, contemporary culture lets us down. The hermeneutic, that's just the way of reading. The hermeneutic of suspicion has become our default mode. How many times have people said, I wonder what they're doing? or I wonder what the agenda is, or actually said, this is what they're doing, or this is their agenda. The hermeneutic of suspicion has become our default mode, encouraging us to lump issues into bundles and people into camps. He's with him and he's with him. It is much easier that way. It stops you having to think or engage in real debate. The church desperately needs to learn once more the gentle art of reasoned discourse of respectful engagement, of real debate. It is, better, it is a better way to be Christian. It is a better way to be human. As Snoopy might have said, clarity ain't everything, but unclarity ain't anything. Okay. The purpose of, uh, of what he said here is, the church, at least in our culture, now just imagine what he wrote in Simply Christian. The church in our culture, um, is, is to a certain extent run by emotion um, and unclarity and picking sides and suspicion. Are those things objective or subjective? Utterly subjective. It's all about you, it's all about me, it's all about what I think, it's all about what you think. And what he's pushing you towards here is to do things in an utterly objective way. Here is the data. Here are the facts. Here's what we've seen. Here's what you said. Now tell us what you actually are about. Tell us what you actually mean. So one is utterly subjective. You may have gotten from Simply Christian that it was utterly subjective. It's all about you. It's all about the non-believer. It's all about the echo of a voice being felt by the person. And then he says here, it's all about being utterly objective. It's all about being rational. It's all about thinking. So I wonder how we can merge the two. Or maybe you can't. I think so. I think he's talking about his own context there, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I think he, yeah, right. I think he just means, you know, you know, like, cheers, I'll drink to the Pope. You know, I'll drink to that, I'll drink to that. But at the end of the day, Newman says his conscience is his king, okay? Which is, uh, for Luther, that's a very, there's a very similar, similar thought with Luther. Remember Luther's great debate when he stands before the diet, he says, um, I am captive to the word of God, and by my conscience I can do no other, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so that kind of makes sense. Do you at least understand what he's trying to say in this article? This is a very difficult article just to have in front of you and have someone read to you. Um, but it's a very different way of thinking, at least from what we've seen in Simply Christian. So how do the two come together? How can you have Simply Christian which says emotions and feelings are very important and then have this article where he says emotions and feelings are idle. It's all about being rational. Well, because, well, tell us why they're not then. Why would you say they're not? Okay, well, then that's good. Your question presupposes at least that, that they're not different. So, so how, would you say, how would you say that they're not that different? This actually might be, might be helpful. How would you say they're not that different? Right. Okay. Okay. From his perspective, you mean, from the author's perspective. He wrote a very reasoned discourse on engaging Christianity. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. Although it'd be in Wheaton, like, in October. Okay. Tell us more. Keep going. Keep going. This is good. <laughs> That's like when I say to Emma, she says, I love you. And I say, why? And she says, because I love you. I want to go to church. Why? Because I want to go to church. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. You can't just say that. I don't think N.T. Wright was not irrational in the way he wrote his book. He wasn't irrational. There's, very, there's a very rational approach to this. This is the way people think. This is the culture. This is what we know from scripture. And here's how people can engage it. That's a very linear way of thinking.
you think he thinks? Were the echoes of a voice at the very beginning, were those subjective or objective things? <laughs> okay. Well. <laughs> Is beauty, in his book, in his book, does he presume that people are going to see beauty as something subjective or objective? I'll, 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 simpl I'll simplify it even more. For N.T. Wright, is beauty in the eye of the beholder? Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's like, it's like when people say, uh, um, when, when uh, people rail against postmodernism by saying that uh, there is such a thing as objective truth. You know, postmodernism says there's no such thing as objective truth. And they say there is objective truth, whatever Jesus says. What they fail to realize is Jesus in and of himself is utterly subjective truth because he does what he wants. But what he does then becomes objective truth for us. It's, and you get what I'm saying. And that, that could be said of the echoes in the book. They could be both objective because they come from Jesus, but also subjective because they affect people in different ways. I mean, I, I give you an example. Here's, here's what I, I think N.T. Wright's book, I think the criticism of the book, at least early on, and part of, it's actually refreshing to have you say this because maybe the book redeemed itself near the end. It kind of made sense and become a bit, became a bit more rational, if you will. But I think the criticism of the book to start was, why aren't we engaging people with objective truth, such as scripture? Instead, we're talking about beauty and justice, and why are people lonely and unloved, and those are utterly subjective things. That was the criticism of the book. And then he says in his article, it's not about feelings and emotions, it's about being rational. It's about rational discourse, as you said. Good. Well, I think, um, you notice I said I think, not I feel. I think, it was, it was very interesting for me yesterday talking to this woman. This woman called from, um, I think she's a member of Bethany Naperville. She called about our catechumena to write this article for some magazine. And, um, she said, at some point in the conversation, I said, people, people in the age of postmodernism are drawn to things like beauty and are drawn to things like authority and are given to obedience and given, I mean, all the stuff you've heard me say for 20 weeks. Um, what's great is when you talk to someone who hasn't heard it, they're like, whoa, that is very interesting. I say down here, you guys are like, you know, oh, yeah, there he goes again, obedience, authority, yeah, we know. But this woman was taken by it, and she said, and I said, a lot of our, a lot of our new members uh, are not Lutheran, and many of them are very young. You know, probably 90% were under the age of 40. And I said, I just, I would pose the question, and you never want to say anything that's going to get you in trouble because this is going to be published, and then I don't want someone banging on us. And I said, I would just at least pose the question, are younger folks given to some of those things in a different way than maybe their parents were? 
doesn't mean their parents weren't given to it. I mean, everyone, regardless of your age, can say that there's something beautiful in life, or there's some justice in life, or there's times when you've been lonely and unloved. But I wonder if it strikes a chord at least differently with younger people than it does with older people. Just a question, not an assertion, just a question. So I said to this woman, yeah, I mean, young people are, young people are drawn to this. Um, you know, we put candles up and we have incense and we have icons out every once in a while and we wear vestments and we do all these things because it engages the five senses. And the five senses are very subjective. It's what you smell, it's what you hear, it's what you feel, it's what you taste. And she was, uh, and she's a very liturgical woman, but she was struck by that in a very good way. She said, wow, coming into church every Sunday and seeing 27 candles would be a very glorious thing. So I wonder if um, in years past, as you engage the culture, you would begin with very rational explanations for what you're trying to do. And then you would move people toward the subjective experience of it all. We're going to give you all the data, rational, and then we're going to show you the life, subjective, feelings, emotions ups and downs, good times, bad times. And whether or not today we say to folks, we're going to show you the life. We're gonna, you want beauty? We'll show you beauty. You want community? We'll give it to you. And once you're caught up in all of that very subjective thing, you're lonely, now you're loved, then we will give you the rational data. Here's how the Lord works. He speaks and it happens. I mean, what he says in here about say what you mean and mean what you say, that's what we say to every new member class about Jesus. He says what he means and means what he says. And you see that that comes to his fulfillment then at the Eucharist where he says, this is my body, and it is, right? But I wonder if there's just a different, a different way of engaging the culture. I think there is, where you begin with something very subjective. You might claim it's objective because it comes from Jesus. That's true. But, for, but, it, but it hits, yeah, but it hits every, one of you said it. Yeah, but yeah, because it hits every, but it does hit every person differently. because you're very rational. Did you ever have experience where you, where you ever have a time where you experience something and you actually can't comprehend it, you just say, this is good? Yeah. Yeah.
Nothing good ever happens by force. I'm sorry, but I feel. Oh, you said I feel. That's not good. We just read. The, no, you're not supposed to say that. Those are swear words. Oh, 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 I see. Okay, gotcha. How, how about you say this? Uh, yeah. Well, don't say I feel. Say I think because it's in the text. So, so just say what Jesus says is um, he doesn't do anything by force. And the greatest heresy is you know, Burger King, have it your own way. And if you want to have it your own way, eventually he may just let you have it. There's no gray, there's, there's, very, there's, very little, uh, uh, there's very little gray area with Jesus. Jesus is actually very black and white. But if you don't want to, if you don't want to play in one of those realms, black or white, he says you can, you can have the other one if you really want it. I think. Oh, I just read an article saying don't say I feel. I'm just, come on. I think, I think. Yeah. No, right. What do you have, well, Miss Bourne? With very well said. I I you're exactly right. I think what's that? Yeah, I think I think you're right. I, I mean you saw this even let's just let's let's just take the uh, let's take the text. Let's just take the biblical text. You saw in the last few weeks of the church here, and you see this all over the scriptures, but especially in the last few weeks. One of the one of the well what you saw was Jesus loving people the way that they needed to be loved, which is exactly what you're saying. They've got needs, and until those needs are met, they actually can't even begin to listen to what you have to say. Okay, And that's just, that is common sense. That's just straight common sense. Anything else, I mean, when your kid, you know, your kid you know, needs to go in for stitches, and you say, 
calm down, calm down, calm down. They actually can't calm down so you can meet the need of they're bloody and they've got a big you know, gash on their head, right? You can't meet someone's needs until, you can't begin to talk to someone rationally until their needs have been met. So in the last half of the church year, especially the last few weeks, I mean, just take St. Peter's mother-in-law. She's very ill. Jesus can do anything for her he wants. He could make her dinner. He could bake her bread. He could bring her some wine. He could do whatever he wants. But the way that she needs to be loved is she needs to be healed of her illness. So Jesus walks in and heals her, and then the Christian life progresses from there. He loves her the way she needs to be loved. She gets up and does for him. He loves Je she loves Jesus the way that he needs to be loved, which is by serving, right? And it's, it's very much the same way in the church. People come in, and maybe, you know, it'd be good for all of you if you, were, if you were up for it. You should all come through the catechumen just to see. I, I would guess for someone who's been a member here for 20 or 30 years, it's a very different group of people who are now coming into the church. It's just not, you know, say it's not your grandfather's church. It's not. It's not the same church you guys all joined years ago um, because it's just a different set of people in the world who are now coming in to join. So the way you engage them is very different than maybe it was 30 or 40 years ago. Now people really are lonely. My husband left me. My kids don't love me. My kids are off at school. You know, they're unloved. We have a marriage, but we, we don't talk to each other. They've got a variety of problems. There's no beauty in my life. My house is falling down. My husband lost his job. You know, I can't go out and get my hair. I can't do anything I want. You know, there's no beauty. There's none of that in life. And the church needs to be able to answer those needs and those desires specifically for that person, specifically for that person. There's no blanket care for people. In the scriptures, Jesus always works with people nose to nose. This is your problem, and this is how I'm going to fix it. And that's the way the church needs to engage the culture, and especially engage new people who are being brought into the church. That's part of the reason why we sign you up to a sponsor the minute you come in, because that sponsor's job is to find out what your needs are. And then hopefully we've paired you with the right person because we have a little data on you before you come. And that person then can love you the way that you need to be loved. Where it all goes awry, this is, this is the worst thing a church can do. They can have a bunch of people that say, we want to care for people, we want to love people, and they only love people the way that they themselves need to be loved. That is idle. I mean, that is idolatrous. Because what's happened is you yourself are your own God. You've placed yourself in the person of another, and you're loving that person the way that you want to be loved. And so the goal of the church is to say, what are your needs? Now that is a very subjective thing. And by subjective, I mean everybody's different, right? Everybody's different. Not everybody's lonely. Not everybody's ugly. Not everybody's tired. Not everybody's whatever. But everybody's got a different set of, set of issues, and we engage those differently. But then, you move people to something very rational. Here is the objective data, because when you live your life in the church, this is, uh, this is the great thing about how N.T. Wright ends. Um, when you live your life in the church, you will only succeed if you operate in the realm of objective truth or objective data. So someday, when, you know, when you've got a beef with me or with someone else, this is where rationality is key. You bring a, this is Matthew 18. If you got a beef, you bring the data, and you say, here's what's happened. You looked at me crossways. You were rude. You were whatever. You bring the data, and it can't run by emotion, or the church will never succeed. We bring you in very subjectively. Here are your needs. 
once you're in, we only work by objective truth. Here's the Bible, here's Jesus, here's what he says, here's how we live together, and if we move out of the way of any of that, call us on it, tell us, and we'll, we'll confess. That makes sense? Talk about a discourse. Someone said to me this morning, can you really go an hour and a half on this? I said, I could talk an hour and a half about anything. <laughs> um, as maybe some of you can, who knows? But just a different way, it's just a different way, and this is not a bad thing, it's just a different way of doing the church. Um, and that's part, of what we're, that's part of what we're trying to figure out. That's part of what we're trying to figure out. I was half tempted to bring down the catechumenate. I gave it to you probably a year ago to look at, before we ever did it, to bring it down and look at it again and see if you saw things differently maybe. Uh, now that we've been through it and now that you've read N.T. Wright, and you're thinking maybe a bit differently about the culture. So, what else? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, right. I think, you, I, I think you hit the nail on the head because in the scriptures, you know, um, old men and old women bring up young men and young women. And especially you see this in 1 John where there's the language, actually the language of the catechumenate in 1 John. It talks about fathers, young men, and children. He's not talking age there. He's talking spiritual maturity there. And so you have these young children being brought into the church, young in the faith, and the old men and the old women, the spiritually mature, who then bring them up. Through, you know, through adolescence, through being a young man, all the way to maturity. And that, if, if, and I'm not talking old in age, although oftentimes that's the way it works out. The older folks in the congregation are the most spiritually mature. Why? They've been in contact with Jesus the most. They've been at the Eucharist the most. If they can, if they can speak well of things and love people and have a key role, you know, play a key role in the process of bringing people into the church, there's no greater gift than that because that's the way it is in the Bible. That's the way, even in the Exodus, you know, for the Passover. Remember what happens with the Passover? The oldest man in the house stands up and speaks. And everybody else listens. They say, Father, why did the, why did the angel pass over? And then the father speaks to the family. It should be the same thing here. People should say to the joy group, why did the Lord do this? And they should be able to say, because this is how he works. This is how he operates. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Make him stronger, right. That is exactly right. Yeah, that's well said. Um, it's about moving people, it's about moving people from, from strength to strength, right? 
and everybody has everybody has issues. <laughs> everybody. Um, and you could spend a lifetime working on those things, and you could also spend a lifetime pointing them out in people. Neither, uh, the working on them part is okay, the pointing them out is not in the way of the gospel. See how people from strength to strength, and you teach them that there's more to life than simply, um, simply having the name Christian, right? And that's, yeah, yeah. And the and the and the distinguishing between what's right and what's wrong. This is this is where N.T. Wright is very helpful. That is an objective thing, right? It's not about what you like or what I like. It's about what the Lord says, right? There are many things in life that we say that's wrong. This is his point about suspicion rules the day. There are many things in life where you say. That can't be right. And you say to someone, why can't it be right? Well, because I don't like that. Well, it can only not be right if the Lord says it's not right. And that's where you move people from the subjectivity of emotions and feelings and desires and needs to the objective truth of Scripture and the objective truth of Jesus. Here's what Jesus does. Here's how he operates. Here's what he said. Now, if that doesn't line up with what's going on, something's got to give, and it's never Jesus. Right? Right? Twenty-somethings in the back are thinking right now. Let's go out for a drink. <laughs> Ten fifteen. It's four o'clock somewhere. You know. Yes. Yeah, right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's right. It was a different, it was a different, even my own parents, you know, it was a different, there's a whole different reason for going to church. And growing up, I'm very grateful because we went to church just because that's what we did. And my parents were very pious. I'm not saying that they just went to go, but there was never a question about going because you just went. <laughs> and I'm very grateful because that, you know, routine and objectivity like that is not a bad thing. But I think, I think what we've seen is culture as a whole today doesn't operate that way. They just don't. And so you need to find a way um, to really hone in on what their needs are. Not in the way of the law. And what I mean by that is, you know, not to get something for yourself, but simply because you know that's how people operate. So you pull them in and then you give them all the good gifts, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's and it's when yeah. 
Yep, and I think it's interesting to see. You can see this play out in real time in a church, and here's how. When something traumatic happens in someone's life, who do they call first? Oftentimes it's family. Now, there's a shift going on. Guess who people call today? The church. Very odd. My parents, I, my parents, if someone died in my family, they would not call the church first. And that's nothing against my parents. I love to death. Well, okay, someone's in the hospital. Okay, it's a one-off. Someone dies. Someone's in the hospital. Someone's sick. We find, it's very strange how we find out that people are sick. Sometimes it is days later. And it's a very sad thing because what we want to do is be there for them and help them out. But that's just not, the phone chain of a different generation works a bit differently. You call a couple, you call your family, you call some of your friends, you, may, you call the church, um, but, uh, but a different generation, one who truly is lonely and unloved, and sees, I think what you've said about the church being your family, that's, a, that's how people see it now, especially young folks. Someone gets sick, someone dies, they call the church which is a very, very different way of thinking, um, but probably is more in line with what you grew up with. In a, in a, and that's what we want. We said from the beginning, we want the church, a big church, to feel like a small church. So we want a church of 1,800 or 2,000 members to feel like a church of 100 members. Yeah, which is a difficult thing to do, but the catechumenate helps do that because you pair them up with people, they get to know people, they, yeah, you were part of it, you know. I mean, you know kind of how it works out. Um, and that's what, that's, what, that's what it's after. I think, it's, I think it's caught on, and I think it's going to catch on for a while. But everything changes. I mean, generations come and generations go, and in 100 years, it's going to be a different cultural question, whatever that may be. Um, but I think this is something that's caught on. It's, it's, it's interesting you use the word oppressive, because that probably it probably wouldn't be the first word I'd think of when I thought of the church, you know, the church of the past 60 years. But I think that's the way people think about it. I think you're exactly right. That's why I think you're actually right. I think people think about the church, at least they used to think. And it's hard for this group because many in this group grew up in the church, you know. So this, it wasn't oppressive for me when my parents said we're going to church. But for a non-Christian 50 years ago or 100 years ago, it may have looked very oppressive. Um, but I... Yeah, but what's strange is I don't think, teen, and again, these are broad strokes. There are always exceptions. But I don't think teenagers today feel the same way. I mean, we've got teenagers, we got teenagers coming in at 7 a.m. to be at the Eucharist. That wouldn't have happened 50 or 60 years ago. Yeah. 
But let me ask you this. That, okay, that's a good question. But the stuff you see on TV. I mean, I know it's yeah. I, I completely agree. The stuff you see on TV, though, is that in the way of this book? No. What's in the way of this book is the liturgy, right? So I can tell you this. When I was in Notre Dame in Paris for Advent 1 two years ago, they had the bishop there. Incense. I mean, there was so much incense in this place, you could barely breathe. The place was packed, probably 2,000 people. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I mean, probably 2,000 people. I bet you 75% were college kids. Now, why are they drawn to that? Partly, they don't see that on TV. What you see is the guy who holds his Bible, the big floppy one, moves it like this. You know, if you send $20, we'll heal you. You got the guy who's screaming all the time. You've got people who say, you know, my Jesus does this, and my Jesus doesn't like these people, and my Jesus. That's what you see on TV. What you don't see is the liturgy. What you don't see is beauty. What you don't see is pizzay. What you don't see is candles and incense and icons and prayer. That's what you don't see. So if all, so this is part of the reason why we bring people to church. If you're just watching TV, you're seeing something that's completely and utterly well, it's not N.T. Wright. <laughs> it's not N.T. Wright, and it's not postmodern. <laughs> it already has. Yep. For, and I'll give you, the, I'll, yeah, I'll give you an example. Um, the Emergent Church, it's called. You should go home and Google it up. It's a emergent church. It's a movement kind of in evangelical theology. Now, evangelical, historically, is kind of, it's, it's at least a-liturgical. It's not anti-liturgical, maybe. But there is no real liturgy to it. It's a movement within evangelical theology that has tried to bring back some of these liturgical things. Um, the downside to it is there's no solid theological foundation behind it. The great thing about being a Lutheran, sorry, <laughs> the great thing about being a Lutheran is you have a very solid theological foundation. Everything, you, everything we do has not only the Bible behind it and Jesus behind it, but also the history of our doctrine behind it, our teachings. The problem with the emerging churches, they say, we're going to do all this stuff in church. Why do you do it? Uh, we don't know. We don't know. But we're going to do all this stuff. Now, they're drawing thousands and thousands of young people to this. And adults. That movement is taking root in evangelical theology, especially in this area, in kind of the, the, the Illinois area, especially, but even kind of the Wheaton area. Um, I had lunch with a guy from Wheaton College who's a, who's a administrator down there, and he said, all these students are going to emergent church services, Pizay services, the Eastern Orthodox services, Anglican churches. They don't, go to, they don't go to other evangelical churches in the area. I think it is taking root. The key is to not only have a great liturgy, but to have something behind it, right? Which is why a Lutheran liturgy is so great. But go to Tizay in France sometime, Thousands of people. We'll send you there. Wednesday night here, yeah. Holly. Yeah, right.
Yeah, right. Abe <laughs> like four score and seven years ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. And I think, uh, especially, yeah. Well, I think especially just just in today's culture, and and this is an economic thing. So many people are working so hard to make money to support their families, you know. And this, believe me, this is not a, this is not my own opinion. But I don't actually care one way or the other. But many moms are going back to work. You know, they're not staying home with their kids. They can't afford it. People are so busy that they don't have time for that kind of stuff. They don't have time to set up the obstacle course. They don't have time to go to eight Bible studies during the week. They don't have time for that. So really what the church is, what the church has to recognize is with many people, you have one shot a week at people. And that's the only dose of Jesus they're going to get all week. So it better be good. And it better be natural. I said to this woman on the phone yesterday, I said the great tragedy with the, with the liturgy, the reason people left the liturgy is because it wasn't done well. And by well, I don't mean rigid. Rigid is not done well. There are many churches that do the liturgy rigidly, but it needs to be hospitable and welcoming and reverent because Jesus is there, but not, not overbearing and not like you're, you know, you're a puppet or you're a robot. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> Buy it, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, once you've been forgiven, that's the great joy of the Christian life is once you've been forgiven, there are, there are very few limitations and restrictions. It's like go out, have fun, be good, never stand in the way of the gospel, give a good witness when you can, and you don't always have to worry about, you know, converting people or doing diet Bible studies or whatever. It's just 
I mean, just go out and just be normal. If you want to, you, you know, the Lord says, I baptize your brain, so get a membership at the gym, you know? <laughs> right, Betty? Yeah, say your prayers when you're on the treadmill. I actually saw, I actually saw, it's very funny, because I, I go down to Wheaton College, and these people, these people are on the treadmill, like, reading their Bibles and saying, and I give them a lot of credit, because it's a, I mean, if you can run and read your Bible at the same time, that's great. But it is funny to look down the line. You know, I'm, I'm up there with, like, Sports Illustrated and whatever, and they're, they've got, you know, ESV, King James, Bible Study Devotional. I'm thinking, man, just relax and have some fun. You know, just read something, read something normal. I mean, the Bible's normal, but, you know, sorry. While you're working out, yeah. Well, it's, and it's, and it's, uh, and it's, yeah, I didn't see any of that. Yeah, right. And it's very, it's very anti-sacramental. If you come in contact with Jesus in the sacrament every day, or at least once a week, other stuff like that is, you don't view those things the same way. You don't look for Jesus in your recycling, you just recycle because you want to take care of the earth. Different, yeah, it's a different way of viewing, of viewing the Christian life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That was a very, he said it very simply, but it was very profound the way he said that. He loves you before you were born, loved you before you were born. He'll love you after you're dead. And while you're on earth, he gives you a chance to love him. And it's, it, none of that happens by force. I mean, this is very important. All in the way of the gospel, he gives you a chance to love him, right? I mean, he invites you to love him. Um, and if you have bad days where you say, I don't know if I love him, he says, that's okay. It's going to be fine. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, at the end of the day, he, you know, he always loves you, and that's the most important part. Anything else? Celine Dion did sing that song, maybe, but it was also Meatloaf, just so you know. You weren't there. What song is it? What song was it? Oh, it's all coming back to me now. Didn't Meatloaf sing that? Oh, Holly. Holly, Holly, both Hollies. I need to, I need to, I need to uh, open up your cultural worldview for you. 
which is something I'm very good at. <laughs> so, uh, meatloaf, yeah, we'll listen to him next week, maybe. Yeah, not what you eat. That's what he's called. He's called meatloaf. Or Tony, Tony, Tony. Lay your head in my pillow. You ever heard that one, Betty? <laughs> I'll play that one for you next week, too. All right, here, uh, one, more, one more thing. There are two thank you notes here. One to the Tuesday night women. One to Friday morning women from the Burmeisters. Um, I'll just set them down here. If you want to take a look at them on the way out, that'd be great. Um, they wrote very nice cards. Um, so take a look at that. Anything else before we go? Nothing. Say that again? On the 15th? Yeah, just show up. There'll be plenty of food. Bring some jello in the liturgical color. It'll be great. I said bring some jello in the liturgical color. Either red or green. Red or green, yeah, right. Uh, purple, yeah, well, red will suffice. It's kind of like. Red and blue make purple. There you go. By your last name, B. B, I think, brings beer. Miller High Life. Just bring a taste of that. Salad? Salad or vegetable? All right, here we go. Let's pray. Let's go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, thank you very much.